Good evening and welcome to our sixth and final class in our Empty Nesters Breakout Session Series for the year 2017. Tonight we will be examining the Apostle Peter's plea to be continually adding to our faith, love, and more precisely, love for the things of God. I've entitled this lesson, Don't Zone Out, because I believe our natural tendency is to become complacent in our relationship with God. I will also be presenting how our theology or belief system regarding our love for God can greatly influence generational lift versus generational drift. Obviously, by my use of pyramid imagery, I'm implying that love tops everything else, but that this love for God is dependent upon all those foundational character qualities that lie beneath it. In our theme scripture from Matthew 22, verses 37 and 38, Jesus describes to his audience what is most meaningful to his heavenly Father. That is love for him. But what exactly does love for God mean? Jesus, of course, gave us the most perfect demonstration of love for God. But I think the apostles' attempts to love God give us perhaps more relatable examples to try and emulate. So with this in mind, let's take a look at the events recorded in chapter 13 of John's Gospel and examine how the apostle Peter demonstrated his love for God and discuss how his actions revealed his theology or belief system. Now, here are some discussion points from the Gospel of John, chapter 13. In verses 1 through 5, it reads, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus, as usual, takes the initiative and then demonstrating God's love for his creation. As we'll see in uh, verses 6 through 12, which I will now read, He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. 
But unfortunately, man, as usual, tends to misunderstand what God is trying to tell him. As we'll see now in verses 13 through 17, Jesus continues, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for this is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So here, Jesus is trying to exemplify before his departure that love for God should be displayed by humble service to others. And in verse 31, I'll continue reading. When he was gone, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my, my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Here Jesus seems pretty clear and emphatic about this new command to similarly love one another. But what was Peter's takeaway? And what did Jesus feel compelled to reemphasize to Peter upon his return? Well, let's explore this idea by examining Jesus' reinstatement of Peter as recorded later in John's Gospel in chapter 21. And I'll begin reading in verse 14. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When he had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. So I'd like to discuss some points from this passage. 
Again in verse 14 and 15, why did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me more than these? And who were the these he was referring to? Now, it may help you to recall that it is of first importance to love God above all else, then secondarily to love your fellow man. And that is, of course, from Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 39, as I mentioned earlier. In verse 16, I'd like you to consider what would you have asked Peter next? Or, for example, how would you have felt if Peter didn't stick up for you while he was waiting around in the high priest's courtyard? In verse 17, what do you believe was the purpose for Jesus asking Peter the same question three times? And finally, with John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commands in mind, do you think Jesus was trying to get through to Peter that love for God is obedience to his commands and that one of these essential new commands, namely from John 13, 34, was to love one another, that is, take care of my sheep. And why was this such an important teaching for Peter to grasp? Well, most scholars interpret Peter's role to be that of the lead apostle. That is to set an example for the other apostles and all future disciples of Jesus to follow. Now, it makes perfect sense to me, then, why Jesus is determined to help Peter get his theology on straight, lest the apostle contribute to generational drift in his lifetime. And this is highlighted by the apostle John at the close of his gospel. So let's pick up again in verse 20 of John chapter 21. I'll begin reading. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, oh, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And what does God expect from us? Are we obeying God? Are we really getting it? Or are we just acting like we're really listening? Like my grandson Cameron is demonstrating in this picture. It's now several decades later for Peter, and the apostle will soon be martyred. I believe he's calling out to us over the ages and encouraging us to listen carefully and not forget these truths so that we too may be used by God to promote generational lift. Let's read together again our theme scripture for this year from 2 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 15. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from the past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. So also, I would like to reiterate the St. Peter guarantee in verse 10. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. I believe all of us are wanting our faith to be effective and productive for God, just like Peter describes in verse 8. Again, I'll read. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Peter provides us with a very useful suggestion in verse 9, which I'll reread. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. To help us maintain such a faith. Peter talks about the importance of remembering how you have been cleansed from your past sins. So here are my practical suggestions for helping us maintain a sharp spiritual view of such things. You know, at this time of the year, we're already well attuned to recalling how richly God has blessed us. And based upon the Apostle Peter's comments, I would like to also suggest that we not only count our blessings, but count our demons too, or more accurately, our canceled demons. Now please allow me a few minutes to explain what I mean by way of reference to two individuals who had an encounter with Jesus that radically transformed their lives. I really enjoy these stories because of how they describe these men falling in love with God. First, the synoptic gospel writers all mention how Jesus healed a man possessed by many demons. And I am particularly fond of Mark's account of this familiar story. So let's pick up in verse 14 of chapter 5 as I begin reading. 
Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by a legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. What I believe made this man's faith so effective and productive was his testimony of how God blessed his life, that is, had mercy on him. By sending a Savior, Jesus the Messiah, to rid him of the many demons that tormented him. Again, I've highlighted in the text how God used him to promote generational lift. But perhaps you find this man's situation too difficult to relate to. So let's consider then a second individual, a certain man who was blind from birth, who had a coincidental encounter with Jesus. Please turn over with me to chapter 9 of John's Gospel. I'll begin reading in verse 1. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Well, how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed it. Then I could see. Where is this man? They asked. I don't know, he said. Again, I've highlighted in this text how God used him to promote generational left. But let's continue reading in verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. Well, what do you have to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. 
they still did not believe that he had been blind and, and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents had said, he is of age, ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. You know, it's kind of sad to me that when the whole community should have been celebrating along with a man who could now see for the first time in his life, that instead they thrust the poor guy into the middle of a heated political debate or gripe session, if you will, about Jesus, a man he had just met for the first time earlier that day. But the story doesn't end there as we continue to read in verse 26. Then they asked, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from? Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. You know, similarly to the formerly demon-possessed man, this formerly blind man had a story to tell his family and anyone else who was listening. And as evidenced by his behavior and his boldness, it's obvious to me that this man who was blind but now can see, fell in love with the Son of God. So as I conclude, I wish to leave you with these two final questions to ponder and discuss with one another tonight. First, because Jesus has done so much for you, what story will you tell in the Decapolis? And because you were blind, but now you see, how will you display the works of God? And to God be the glory. Amen.